Genesis 21, beginning in verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Philcor, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me, here before God, that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me and the country where you are living as an alien the same kindness I have shown to you. Abraham said, I swear it. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me, and I heard about it only today. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a treaty. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of the seven ewe lambs you have set apart by themselves? He replied, Accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. So that place was called Beersheba, because the two men swore an oath there. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Philcor, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray together. Our Father, we come before you. We ask that you would quiet our hearts and minds and cause us to turn our attention to Christ Jesus. And Father, we ask that you would use your servant in a mighty way this day and that you would use your words and your Holy Spirit to accomplish all that you have set out for them to do. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. How does a Christian live in this world? How is a Christian to respond to what is going in the world? How do we respond to the pressures and concerns that are all around us in the world? I mean, just to try to orient you to the question being asked. Consider for a moment the political world at the moment. You know, America is on the cusp of an extremely unusual election, to say the least, and I will say no more. Uh, Yet this election may set the norm for generations to come as the world watches from the sidelines. What is important in this political race and what are the issues at the center of it? And how does a Christian respond to it all? What are Christians obligations as they engage with the world that they sojourn in. We cannot escape it completely. We cannot remove ourselves from it completely. We are flesh and blood, people in the world of flesh and blood. How then do we respond to what the world is doing, to the actions and events in the world? Well, Christians throughout the centuries have answered that question in several different ways, and each of these ideas are alive and well today. You know, we can separate ourselves completely for, from it. That is one option. We can say that the world has nothing to do with us. 
with me and with the kingdom of Christ. And therefore, we must separate ourselves from it as much as possible. For what has Jerusalem to do with Athens? What does the kingdom of this world have to do with the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ? And some have sought to live as consistently with this idea as possible, separating themselves from the world by dressing differently, by working differently, by refusing to engage in the politics of this world at all because it's of this world and has nothing to do with the next. Surely, what value does it have? Others have answered the question by saying, no, what happens in this world is of utmost importance. Every political victory, every earthly victory is a victory for the kingdom of Christ here in this world. The kingdom of Christ is about what happens here and now. And so much so that a loss in D.C. is a loss in the kingdom of God. And the two worlds are so merged that it becomes almost impossible to separate the two. You see this in the Crusades in the Middle Ages when men were encouraged to kill infidels for the glory of God. And truly, a political victory in this world Regaining the land was a victory for the kingdom of Christ. Now, these two views are radically opposed to one another. They are on the opposite ends of the spectrum from each other. And we can see that they have indeed no taste for one another. These actions of each are equally appalling to the other. And so this morning, I'd humbly like to ask the question, is the right answer somewhere between the two Is the kingdom of God so important that it requires some sort of separation from this world? And yet, are the kingdoms of this world legitimate and worthy of our time and attention in some way and capacity? How does the Bible answer the question of how a Christian should live in the world? Well, beloved, as odd as it may seem, Genesis 21 answers that question. The first thing we see this morning in this text is a king's request, a king's request. We come to our text this morning and we see a king coming out to meet Abraham. And not just the king coming alone, but he comes with the commander of his army, Philcar. Uh, You know, I can't say it right. Philcar, cool. You know who I'm talking about. And Abimelech gets right down to business as they approach to Abraham. When he meets with Abraham, the very first words out of Abimelech's mouth are, God is with you and in all that you do. Therefore, swear with me before God here in this place that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants after them, just as I have dealt kindly with you. Swear that you will deal kindly with me and with this land that you sojourn in. And now just... Consider for a moment, what is going on here? What exactly are we seeing happen? Abimelech, king of the Philistines, he comes out to meet with Abraham. Here is a king over a whole region. All of the land that Abraham happens to be sojourning in belongs to him and beyond. And he comes out personally to meet with Abraham, he and the commander of his army. And the first thing he says is, God is clearly with you. How does Abimelech know this? What makes him say these words since he and Abraham last last met? What is Abimelech now seeing, or at least hearing about Abraham, that makes him desire to come out and meet with Abraham? 
Well, beloved, the only thing that's happened that would matter to Abimelech between uh, chapter 20 and this section is the birth of Isaac. Since the time Abimelech has returned Sarah to Abraham, this 90-year-old woman has borne a son to a 100-year-old man. And God continues to prosper Abraham and bless him beyond comprehension, especially in this miraculous birth of a child given into his arm. And Abimelech must hear this report, and he comes out to Abraham, and he confesses, surely God is with you. He's saying, look, everything your hand touches is blessed by God. He is with you. Somehow, Abraham, you have got the Midas touch. Therefore, covenant with me. Swear to me, Abraham, make a pact with me, one sealed with blood, that you will not harm me, that there will always be peace between us, that you will deal kindly with me and with my children and with my children's children, just as I have dealt kindly with you. And two things are going on for Abimelech here that he comes out and meets with Abraham. One, he's concerned that he nodded up on the wrong side of the coin on a man God, uh, uh, with, on the wrong side of the coin with a man that God has clearly blessed. He doesn't want to end up going to war with Abraham and with good reason. I mean, if, if he's heard of the battle Abraham had back in chapter 14, how he was a great conqueror of the land of Canaan, how God blessed him in even this endeavor with little over three hundred men, finding himself greater than nine kings, he would realize that it is a fine political move as the king of a nation to make peace with this man before any trouble can stir up that would cause strife between the two of them. There's a reason the commander of the army goes with him. He is seeking to avoid war. That is clearly what is on Abimelech's mind. And it seems to be at the root of this exchange primarily, especially as you move on uh, to Genesis 26, and we learn that uh, as after Abraham left the land, all the wells that he dug were stuck, stuck um, plugged up. They were no longer wells anymore. And that's clearly a sign that the covenant between Abraham and Abimelech has ended. It is not indeed a, an everlasting covenant. The very reason that Abimelech will go on to covenant with Isaac is along these same lines, to keep peace in the land, to keep a temporary peace. That is what he is seeking. It is not an everlasting, unending peace, but a political calm. The second reason that brings Abimelech out here is simply what he has put before us in the text. God has blessed you, Abraham. Therefore, swear with me, unite with me as an ally, not as an enemy. Abraham, if everything your hand touches turns into gold, then touch my hand as well that I might become richly blessed by you. That promise God spoke to Abraham back in Genesis 12 come, is coming to pass here. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. God said to Abraham, and Abimelech says, come on, old buddy, old pal, <laughs> you know, Let's be friends. Let me be blessed by you. Peace and blessing are at the root and the heart of Abraham's, or Abimelech's request here. That is what he is seeking as he comes out to meet Abraham. He is seeking to keep 
peace in the land that he reigns over. And if he can be blessed while doing so, all the better then. And so he requests that Abraham make this covenant with him. And Abraham agrees, saying very simply, I will swear. Three words. But then the text shifts. And now no longer is the story about a king's request, but about a sojourner's demand. A sojourner's demand. In verse 25, Abraham now makes his demand on King Abimelech. It's not a complaint. The word is actually he rebukes the king. Now that he knows Abimelech's intentions are for maintaining peace and order in in his kingdom, a, a good and reasonable cause, Abraham hears his reasons out and now he rebukes the kings. Imagine that, you know, a sojourner, a man who is not even a citizen of that kingdom, rebuking the king over the land. This is so out of the norm. It is like when a child corrects a parent in front of all his parents' friends. There is uh, almost shame in this for Abimelech. But Abimelech has sought out Abraham. He has sought peace with this particular man, not the other way around. Abimelech is coming to Abraham as a superior over him, or at the very least as equals. And indeed, even the inferior to Abraham, he is submitting himself to Abraham. And so Abraham makes his demand and he rebukes the king about a well that has been taken from him. And it may seem like an odd request. I mean, of all the things, you have a king who's coming and he wants to uh, make peace with you. And he says, you know, there's this well over here that we really need to talk about. It may seem odd to us, but really it's perfect timing for Abraham to bring this up that has been taken by force. The king comes to Abraham and says, I want peace with you, Abraham. And Abraham says, okay, well, I want peace with you too, but if we're going to have peace together, we're not going to have peace for the sake of peace. Justice needs to be the basis for that peace, Abimelech. You know, we need to have a law that is a foundation for what we believe. We want, you want me to be passive towards you, and you want me to show you no violence, then I need you to do the same to me as well. You see, Abimelech, I dug a well over here and your people took it from me. They seized it from me. The word is very violent, the taking of this well from him. They seized it through violence to me. And now you're asking me to not be violent towards you. Then your responsibility, Abimelech, is to not be violent back to me. If you want peace, Abimelech, there must be justice between us as well. Some sort of standard that we can agree on, that we can work together. Some sort of basic law that we can both agree to be founded upon. It's interesting. Abraham now seeks justice for a wrong done to him. But it seems clear that from the text that he doesn't mention it until the king approaches him for peace And he has done nothing about it prior to this. Up until this point, Abraham has turned the other cheek. He did nothing with the knowledge that he had been wronged by Abimelech until Abimelech comes to him and says, let's have peace. And then, and only then, does Abraham say, if we're going to have peace together, if the people of God are going to have peace with the world, then justice needs to be the basis for it. This well was stolen from me, and you and I both know that it is wrong to do so. And Abimelech hears Abraham's rebuke, and he agrees. He basically says the same thing three different times to affirm, Abraham, you're right, you know, but uh, you know, justice needs to be the basis for our covenant together. 
I don't know who did this thing. You never told me about it. And I have not heard about it until now. But now that I know, it will be rectified. The well will indeed be yours, Abraham. And so in verse 27, it tells us that sheep and oxen are given to Abimelech for the cutting of a covenant. And that is what we see here. A covenant being cut. A covenant being cut. Something happens here between these two men at this point. Something we've seen before in chapter 15. Some very picture, uh, similar pictures are unfolding for us. And the text doesn't need to be explicit about what happens with these sheep and oxen here in verse 27. The text tells us in verse 27, the men cut a covenant. The English might say made, but in the Hebrew it is explicit. They cut a covenant. They take these animals and they cut them apart, these oxen and these sheep, and they walk between them saying, if justice is not kept on my part, or if peace is not kept on my part, on my end, may I lie here like that ox that is laying upon the ground. May my head be separated from my body just as this sheep. Peace and justice are established between these two parties, one party being a pagan nation, the other being God's own called out chosen people. And they come together and they covenant and they share an agreement bound by an oath in blood on the basis of living peaceably together and on the basis of justice. The foundation that holds their pact together is one of justice and peace. Now there are some basic laws that will hold them both to the same standards together. And then Abraham does something a little unusual. Apparently it's unique enough that Abimelech says, no, what are you doing, Abraham? Uh, We did what I came here to do. What do these seven lambs mean that you have just set aside? What do they represent? For what reason have you set them apart here now as we have covenanted together? And Abraham tells him these lambs, they act as a witness between me and you that I dug this well. They act as a witness that you will uphold what you said you would do. You will take these lambs and you will take them back with you and they will remind you that this well is rightfully mine. That You will allow me to live here in this land unmolested and not commit violence against me to take it back. You will act justly with me. And so the place we see is named Beersheba. Which means, one, which means oath of swearing or the oath of the seven. And either referring to the seven lambs or the, the, the swearing itself that took place here. This place then is now a place where by its very name, Abimelech, you will recall what you swore to me here. And justice will be kept in this very place. And so Abimelech takes the sheep and he and his general return back home to the land of the Philistines. And we're left wondering, what is this whole scene about? I mean, how does this speak to us about our interaction with the world as the people of God, this covenant, these sheep, this well? What is at the heart of this text? What holds it all together? Why is it here for us? How does it affect our faith? I mean, does it do anything for us as Christians? Besides communicating to us how we ought to live alongside of pagans. I mean, surely it is a good deal. 
or it tells us a good deal of how we ought to live in the world. Surely that is part of this text. Abraham has been promised both a seed and a land, and now that the seed is here in the person of Isaac, just as God promised he would come, now it seems as though the promised land comes under threat. Abimelech's men have stolen a well from Abraham. Even though this land is the land that God promised Abraham, that this land would be his and his children's, and now Abimelech's men have stolen this water source from him, the very source of life in these regions of the world, the ability to be sustained in this land, to remain there, and they have done so unjustly. Yet even though injustice has been dealt with Abraham, even though he may have to move on from this land, this land that God has promised him, he remains silent, he turns the other cheek until the question of justice is brought to him. And when that is brought to him, he, without backing down at all, basically says, what you did to me, Abimelech, it was not just and it was wrong. How does this help us as Christians? Abraham wants, waits to bring up his grievance, his wrong, until this point. Why? What is at the heart of it for Abraham? Why does he wait until Abimelech seeks him out? Why does he not go to Abimelech first? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us, by interpreting this text, it might be uh, uh, starting to sound like a broken record here because we refer to Hebrews 11 a lot, but it really gives us the best understanding for why Abraham was not phased by a well being stolen from him until justice becomes the foundation of their question. Here the Bible interprets for us, Abraham was willing to suffer wrong in this place, Beersheba, because it was not his home. When they left the land of Ur, Abraham realized he was a stranger and an exile in this world. And he left his home looking for a heavenly homeland, Hebrews tells us, a better country than this one that he would dwell in the presence of God himself. He was looking to things promised that he would not receive in this lifetime. And he was okay with suffering injustice here for a little while because God had prepared for them a city whose designer and builder was God. Notice Abraham, even in the midst of this geopolitical covenant that is being made, this very earthly covenant, this flesh and blood thing that he is doing that would ensure earthly justice is carried out for him. Notice where Abraham's heart is in all of this. When Abimelech goes away, notice what Abraham does. He plants a tree and he worships the eternal Lord, the Lord of the living. It's interesting, perhaps a bit unusual to us that he would plant a tree. I know it seems random, but trees have this very significant place in the scriptures. As one writer says, the Bible story of salvation begins and ends with references to trees, beginning with the tree in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in Revelation, if the tree of life. Life is held out by the tree in Genesis 1 to the one who keeps God's law perfectly. And in Revelation, life is given to all who are members together with Christ. And Abraham worships here after planting this tree. And the text is explicit. He worships the everlasting God, the one who gives life forever. He continues 
to practice his faith and worship the God who gives life beyond this world. People of God, how do we live in this world? We live in this world, but we are not of it. Our final goal in this world is not simply to live peaceably with those who are in it. It is not the end goal. Surely we are to live peaceably and we are to promote justice in the world. That's what we are to have common with all those who have been created in the image of God. But if that is all Christianity boils down to, then it is no dif- there is no difference then between it and any other religion out there. In fact, there would be no difference between us and our pagan neighbors if all we are called to is have justice and peace here in this land. But Abraham shows very clearly Christianity is about worshiping the God who gives life, who brings us through death, forgiving us of our sins by nailing them to the cross. For Galatians tells us, cursed is the one who is hanged on a tree. But through that cursed one who is hung on a tree, on your behalf, we are given life and hope beyond this world. We find ourselves in the presence of the very tree of life. You see, ultimately, people of God, Christianity is about an allegiance to another kingdom, another world, another place. Notice the scene ends and Abraham worships God. Abimelech and Abraham go their separate ways. They have this foundation of justice and peace between them, but then Abimelech leaves and he will return to the present concerns and cares of his kingdom that are waiting for him as he returns to the land of the Philistines. While Abraham will continue to be set apart and distinct, different from the rest of the watching world. There is a distinction between him and the world setting his eyes towards heaven, towards Mount Zion, towards the heavenly Jerusalem. Why? Because he belongs to the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ. Christ himself said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And as he prays for his people in John 17, he says, of you, dear Christian, he says, my people I leave in this world, Father, Keep them. Set them apart unto yourself. Keep them from the evil one while they remain in this world. We don't separate ourselves from the world in a radical way, seeking to escape this physical plane. And like Abraham, our goal is not to redeem this world. He is not trying to wrestle the kingdom of Abimelech and make it completely submit to the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ. He realizes Abimelech's kingdom will pass away. It will not stand forever. But while we are here, we seek justice and peace in the land, being peaceable with those who rule uh, over us, allowing justice and peace to be the grounds for working with unbelievers. And yet, all the while, while we do that, we wait with hope and triumphant joy for a kingdom that will have no end, whose ruler is Christ himself. We long For the city of God where we will dwell for everlasting in life, everlasting with the living and everlasting God. That is the end and goal of Christianity, to be in the presence of the living God. And we do so through the perfect merits of Christ Jesus himself who took the curse of our sin upon him 
that we indeed might have life. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we come before you. And we come and we each individually carry concerns and uh, uh, worries, anxieties about this world that we live in. And Father, we confess to you that we need you. We need you to turn our eyes to Christ from whom our, our, our help comes from. Christ, the one who became the word of God, made flesh. Father, we pray that you would turn our eyes to him, the one who is living and who gives life and bestows it upon his people. Father, we pray, though, that you would cause us to be good citizens in the world that we live in, praying for our nation, for those who are in authority over us. We ask that you would give us a willingness to do so. At the same time, we ask, Father, that you would help our nation, that you would cause them to seek peace and justice as they are called to do, even by your very word. And Father, we ask indeed that you would give us clarity, help us, guide us as we walk through this weary world, that you would give us an understanding for who we are while we walk this place. Until, uh, Until you return, Father, we long for the kingdom of God. We long to see you rule justly and perfectly and that there be peace and life in all of the land. We pray, Father, indeed, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, and in your name we pray. Amen.